You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we come to your word this morning, and it is a difficult text, it is a serious subject, and it is a text that is fraught with confusion and has been a source of division and controversy for many years, and we pray today that you would just grant to us the illumination of the Spirit of God to understand, give us clarity, give us a oneness of heart and mind on this, and help us to see in your word truth, to apply that truth to our hearts and to our lives, and to give you glory through it as a result of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll notice that we're doing something different this morning than maybe you had expected. If you had expected after the Christmas holidays to pick up again in the book of Acts, I decided that since we were taking a break from the book of Acts, I would sort of plug this message in because it's been something that I've been trying to sort of bring in for about a year, a year and a half now. And it, this is not the first time I've preached this message. When last time I preached it was November 4, 2001, when we were in the older church building. And uh, when we did that, I told the elders and said to myself, "When every three to five years we need to do this on a regular basis just to bring us all up to speed on the subject of communion, the Lord's Supper, and what it is that we do here on a Sunday morning when we partake of communion because it is uh, something that is very serious and something that is, I think, very profound and very deep and we need to educate our entire body on what it is that communion is all about and what it is that we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. So for the last year, it has been three and a half to five years, and so I've been trying to sort of work it in and thought, well, we, we've taken a break from the book of Acts. Let's go ahead and deal with this at the, end of the, at the end of the year, and then we'll pick up Acts next week, Lord willing. The last time I preached this message, a lady got up in the middle of it and walked out. And I haven't seen her since, and that's no word of a lie. She was sitting in the back of the old church building, and she heard something that I said, and, and I'm going to say it again today, so you'll hear it, and I'll point it out when I do, and I give all of you an opportunity to leave if you would like to. And she just stood up and she walked out, and I've never seen her since. So, be listening. See if you can pick it out when it, when it is that she walked out. In my third year of Bible college, we had a class called Pastoral Ministries class. We nicknamed it Pastoral Miseries class. And uh, I didn't pay much attention during that class because I knew that I would never be a pastor and never be involved in pastoral ministry. So I didn't pay any more attention to that class than I did in the, the preaching and teaching class. And I just barely paid enough attention to pass so that it wouldn't bring down my uh, marks in other areas that I was really interested in, like theology and books of the Bible and things of that nature. But one of the assignments of the pastoral miseries class was that we were to go to a Catholic mass. Now, about 20 minutes from the school was a, a small town out in the middle of the prairies, and the biggest thing in this town was a Catholic church. And as you're kind of going over the rolling hills toward uh, the city of Pontex, it was called, you could see this Catholic spire that stretched up toward the sky, the first thing that you saw. And then you came into the town, and it was like there was a Catholic church, and then a sprinkling of, 
of houses and shops around it. It was by far the largest and the most imposing building in all of the city. And Catholics from all over the southern prairie would come to Pontex because that was sort of where they came to church. So a massive, massive structure. Beautiful, too. Now, I don't know what the purpose of going to a Catholic Mass was when you're in Pastoral Miseries class. And I, don't, I didn't pay attention to what the purpose of it was, but I'm glad it was one of the requirements because it was one of the most interesting experiences of all of my third year at Bible College. And we showed up, we, about 15 or 20 of us that were in the class, piled into the school vans, and we headed off late one evening for the Mass. And it was a, it was a late at night Mass, and if I remember right, it was toward the Christmas holidays. It might have been like one of our last days at school before Christmas break. And uh, we went into Pontex, got out, walked into the building, and we were the newcomers. And so we found a couple of pews, and all these Bible school students sort of filed into the pews, and they did this every year. So I think that a few of the people sort of got the idea that this was the, the Miller group that had come for their their sort of field trip to the Catholic Church for Mass. And we were we were new to the whole Mass experience. I'd never been to a Catholic Mass before. I had no idea what was going on. I had never been to a Catholic funeral, a Catholic wedding, a Catholic anything. I'd never even set foot in a Catholic church up to that time. I had barely spent enough time in Christian churches to get used to what what Protestant Christians do, not to mention Catholics. And we were obviously the outsiders because we were kneeling at the wrong time. We were the last ones to kneel. We were the last ones to stand up. We were the last ones to kneel again. Everybody else would say amen, and we would say amen. The priest would say something in Latin, and then everybody else would join in, and we would try and we're doing our best to fit in. But we were obviously the outsiders to the whole thing. We didn't know when to put your right foot in, put your right foot out, put your right foot in, shake it all about. We didn't know any of the, the liturgy or the litany of the service, none of the stress. We didn't know anything about what was going on. We were trying to observe, trying to fit in. Obviously, we're not. And that reminds me of, it kind of, it's a good illustration of how I think Christians and the uneducated or uninitiated people from outside the Christian church observe some of the things that go on within Christian churches. Have you ever thought if you had no background at all in the Christian faith or Christian teaching and you just stepped into a Christian worship service to observe and you had never seen or heard anything about it and you just came here on a Sunday morning to observe what it would be like to you? Friends, do you understand that we are a group of people who when somebody makes a profession to believe like we believe, we dunk them in water? Does that sound absurd to you? I mean, on the surface, that sounds absurd, does it not? And if you were just observing it, uninitiated and uneducated in the, the, the act of baptism, you would say to yourself, why do they wash people? Why do they bathe people who believe like they believe? And, and then we gather around and we take a piece of bread and we say of the Lord Jesus, this is my body, His words, and then we eat it. And then we take a little cup of juice and we say, this is my blood, and we drink it. Now put yourself in the shoes of the uninitiated and the uneducated somebody who's just observing that, what must they be thinking? These people are crazy. By the way, they thought that in the early church. Because Christians did that, one of the rumors that circulated about Christians in the early church in Paul's day was that Christians were cannibals and that they met together and they ate flesh and they drank blood. It was one of the reasons that the Romans persecuted them by the end of the first century. It's because that was the rumor that was circulating. Well, not only is it possible for the uneducated and the uninitiated and the outsider to think that when they come to a church service, maybe it is that you grew up in a church where communion and baptism were never explained, or maybe you're new enough to the Christian faith that you, you come here and you're not quite sure what it is that we exactly do. We're going to take this morning, this time together, and we're going to sort of go into more depth than we normally do on a Sunday morning about the subject of the Lord's Supper. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you're not there already. 
And we're going to look at this text. It's a familiar text because you hear me read it from time to time when we have communion together. Maybe sometimes you sort of zone out during the reading of it because you can almost recite it just like I can almost recite it. For about once a month, for the last 10 years, I have read this. Uh, Once a month for the last 15 years, I've heard it read or read it myself, and I can almost recite the passage from memory. And it's sometimes things like this can become so familiar that we so familiar to us that they lose the symbolism and the significance. So I want to sort of tear it apart, put some new flesh on these bones, if you will, no, no pun intended there, but sort of add some life and some dynamic to this and try and give us a, a more of an appreciation for what we do here on a Sunday morning when we partake of communion. Now, if you're coming here thinking, okay, is he going to get into the whole Lutheran-Zwingli controversy? Is he a transubstantiationist or a consubstantiationist? Or why does he use all those big words? If you're wondering all of that in your mind, I'm just, let me tell you right off the top, we're not going to talk about transubstantiation, consubstantiation, Zwingli, Luther, or how the Mennonites celebrate, or how anybody else celebrates it. So we're just going to look at this text of Scripture and in its context and kind of go through it and see what we can learn from it. Maybe another time, and there's a lot of stuff that we could go into with communion, so if you have your sort of pet idea or question that you wish I would address this morning, it's, it might not be addressed, but if we ever go through 1 Corinthians and we go through it from first to last like we're doing the book of Acts, we'll deal with it. So hold on for like 10 years. I'll answer your questions or come up and ask me afterwards. And I'll, I'll try and deal with it. And I have actually a list of questions at the end that I want to sort of go through and give you some answers to. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 17 through the end of verse 32. And it is a large passage of Scripture. And I sort of divided it down into three things that Paul is doing. First of all, he is reproving the Corinthian insult of communion. Then he reminds them of the institution of communion. And then he reminds them of the intention of communion. The Corinthians had insulted communion, and then Paul goes back and he says, let me remind you how it was instituted, and then he says, and here is the intention of it, and so he's giving them instruction. Now, much of what you read in the passage is not going to make any sense to you unless you sort of understand some of the context of why Paul is writing. The communion service, or the Lord's Supper in the, Old, in the New Testament, is actually known by, in our day, four different names. The first one is communion, which you've heard me use. There's no biblical text that I can point to that says here's where it's called communion. And that is actually, to be quite frank with you, my least favorite name for this. Communion is my least favorite name. I, my second least favorite name is the, is the title Eucharist. And Eucharist comes from a Greek word, Eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. When he had given thanks, he broke the bread and take it. And so that word given thanks, Eucharisteo, that verb of giving thanks, which translates into our English vocabulary as Eucharist. So it's called the Eucharist. Another title, and this is a biblical one, is the Lord's Table back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I think it's verse 21, 22, somewhere in there. Uh, Paul calls it the Table of the Lord. And the fourth title, and this is the one that I really like, is the Lord's Table. I use communion more than I use the title of the Lord's Table because if I talked about the Lord's Table, you might wonder, what is that? Is that the thing that the communion sits on? What is the Lord's Table? Is that in your office? You have a table in your office, so I just I use communion even though I don't really like that term. So if you hear me using communion and wonder, why is he using a term that he doesn't like? I don't know. I don't like my first name, but I use it all the time. So it's just one of those things. First Corinthians chapter 11. Here's the context. In the early church, in the first hundred years, and it started with the apostles, the church would get together and they would have what were called love feasts or agape feasts. Now, oh, that's another title it's used, is, has been used historically. The love feast or the agape feast. Now, you never hear us refer to a feast around here because that little tiny piece of bread and that little tiny cup, is you'd have to be pretty hungry to regard that as a feast. So we typically don't call it a feast. But in the early church, they would get together for 
basically the, the modern equivalent would be a potluck. And everybody would bring their food and they would contribute to it and they would meet together in people's homes or wherever the church in general met and they would enjoy a meal together and they would, then they would end the meal by observing the Lord's Supper or the, the communion meal with the bread and the wine doing this in remembrance of the Lord. And it was intended to be and it was an expression of all of the unity that the church shared and enjoyed. It was Jew and Gentile sitting down together at a table and eating something that was unheard of. And it, they were eating something that symbolized a sacrifice that made them one in Christ. So it was intended to be an expression of unity. It was intended to be an expression of love. And listen, sharing a meal with somebody is one of the greatest expressions of unity and love that you can, you can do. When you have somebody over to your house and you host them and you spend a meal with them and share a meal with them and enjoy fellowship with them, that is an expression of unity and love. And if you don't do that, you miss out on a huge blessing, by the way. They did that all the time in the early church. And they would get together for, for potlucks and everybody would bring their, their food and they would share it and it was, there was unity, there was fellowship. In all the churches, this was the case. And as the apostles planted churches and established churches, they would pass on this ordinance to be observed by the church. And they gave them the instruction on how to observe it. And everything went, I think, swimmingly, as far as we can tell, in every church except for one. Corinth. Corinth. And listen, something had gone horribly wrong in Corinth. When the Corinthian believers got together, here's what they did. The rich would bring their plates of food to the potluck, and they would keep them from those who were not so rich, the poor, the have-nots. And they would eat and they would gorge themselves. They would stuff themselves. And some of the people in the church would walk away hungry. And the rich would bring not only their food, but also their wine, their beverages. And they would eat and drink to the point where they would get drunk at a love feast. This was going on in the Corinthian church. And it was only symptomatic of, or it was an expression of, a deep division and a deep disunity that was within the church. The rich were against the non-rich. The Jews were against the non-Jews. The spiritually gifted were against the not-so-gifted. The intelligent were against the unintelligent. Males and females had all of their roles were mixed up and misunderstood. Everything was upside down in the Corinthian church. And when they came together, the divisions were so strong and so severe that some of them would come and they would gorge themselves and get drunk and walk away. Others would come and they would be hungry. Can you imagine having a potluck? And you grab your family and you're walking down the 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 aisle there next to the table and across the table is somebody else and you go to take a helping of this uh, bean casserole thing that's on the other side of the table and the guy smashes your hands and says, look, that's for me and for my family. You keep your hands off of that. Yeah, all right. You kind of go up a little bit and you go to take a helping of that and the next guy says, you keep your paws off of that. You, you keep your meat hooks off of that. That's for me and for my family. You don't get any of that. And by the time you get to the end of the thing, you got you, know, you didn't even bring anything because you you're kind of poor. And all you got is a piece of bread there, and you, you eat it, and you think, man, what kind of a meal is this? Not much love at this table, and the guy across from you is drinking up a storm and eating up a storm and gorging himself. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church. So as Paul writes to them, he is writing to correct that abuse, and the first thing he describes is their insult of the communion meal, the Lord's Supper, verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. How would you like to read that over the door of your church? A letter written by the Apostle Paul. When you get together, it's for the worse, not for the better. How, how would you feel if the Apostle Paul wrote us a letter and said, look, when Kootenai Community Church gathers for worship, nobody walks away any better than they came in. You get together for worse, 
not for the better. There's nothing good about what you're doing here. Verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Why does he bring this up in the communion passage? Because it has everything to do with what was going on at the communion meal. These divisions had worked their way into the communion meal. And divisiveness in the church was just one of many problems that they had. They were suing each other. They were rejoicing and applauding immorality. When it came to spiritual gifts, they had all of that messed up. All of that was the result of their division. Everything that they did, this divisiveness, this schisms, manifested itself. You had a group of people in the church that were saying, I'm a Paul. He's my pastor. He founded this church. I I trace my spiritual lineage back to Paul. And the next guy was saying, well, I'm of Apollos. And I think Apollos is the best church leader we've ever had. I like his preaching. He's not as impressive as Paul. And somebody else said, well, I'm of Peter. He visited us one time and he led me to the Lord. So you had the little Apollos faction and the Paul faction and the Peter faction. And nobody wanted to get together. Nobody was eating together. Can you imagine that in our church if somebody said, well, you know, I belong to Jess. I attend his Sunday school. I think he's a gifted teacher. We love his home Bible studies. Um, we, we've got sort of the, the Jess faction over here. And then another group said, well, I'm of, I'm of Dave. We see what he's doing with our youth group and the, and the teens and, and how he's helping out with that. And what he does is a want to commander. Our kids really benefit from his ministry. So of all the elders, we like Dave. And somebody else says, well, I like Jim. Because when I, when I first came here, Jim shook my hand. He said hi. And none of the elders did that. So I'm of Jim. And so everybody, you have the Jess section over here and the Dave section right here in the middle because it's the biggest. And then the Jim section over here, which is the smallest. There's just a couple, a couple pews over here. But I, I've got my people. And nobody wants to eat together. Nobody wants to fellowship together. And if you ask somebody, would you like to serve in Sunday school? And somebody says, well, I'm of Jim. Is there anybody from of Jess's club serving there? They say, well, yeah, we had a couple of Jess guys there. Well, no, I'm not serving anywhere where there's a Jess guy present. You imagine such a mess. <laughs> it almost staggers your imagination, does not? It almost is beyond comprehension that this could go on in a church of all places. And then they sit down at a meal that is supposed to be the expression of their unity and their union and their love together. And Paul says, when you come together for that, it's for the worse. I can't praise you. Why, he says, verse 19, there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. There were those who were approved, you know, the people that they looked to and that these were the guys that, okay, we've approved them. And Paul says they're evident among you. We, we know who they are. There's so many divisions that you've got your leaders and everybody's following their own leaders and those who are approved are evident among you. Verse 20, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Ooh, ouch, doesn't that hurt? When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you observe. You call it what you want, but don't call it the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord is not present. When you get together, the Lord is not there. You know why we call it the Lord's Supper? And this is why I like the title. Because it reminds us that when we are here partaking of communion, He is spiritually present at this meal as the host. That's the point. It's the Lord's Supper. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, we remember that He is spiritually present here as the host of this meal, ministering to us, uniting us together and reminding us of Himself and purging us from sin. And in Corinth, Paul says, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You call it what you want, but it's not that. Because you're not coming together for the better, but for the worse. Verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. You see that problem? One is hungry and another is drunk. Some are leaving and they're starving to death. Others are leaving and they're just, man, i got to go unbuckle my belt, sit down and watch a football game because I am too full to move. That's how some of them were leaving. And drunk at that because they had had so much of the juice and so much of the wine that they were leaving actually intoxicated. 
Now here I think is just this biting sarcasm of the Apostle Paul. And I once in Bible college told one of my professors that I thought Paul at times was sarcastic. And he reproved me for saying that the Apostle was sarcastic. But I don't know how you can read Galatians or Romans or even passages like this and not see the Apostle's sarcasm. Look at it in verse 21 or verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat in? <laughs> Can't you stay home and eat? Is that the, you who come and you bring your food and you bring your drink and you sit here and you, you gorge yourself, can't you do that at home? Why do you have to come here? Well, he knew obviously that the wealthy people who were coming and getting gorged and drunk, they had houses, didn't they? That's a rhetorical question. Don't you have a house that you can stay home? It would be better for you to stay home. Why? Because when you come together, it's not for the better. So if you have a house, stay there. Stay there and do that. Don't come to the church and get drunk. Stay home and get drunk. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Say, well, I found out Paul said I can get drunk at home. That's not what he's saying. He's pointing out the lunacy of what they, it is that they were doing. Don't you have a house? Then stay home. It's kind of like in Malachi when the priest would bring all of the lame animals, the lambs and everything up to the altar, and they would present this to the priest. And finally, Malachi and the Lord have so much. They're so fed up with it. God just says, would that you would bar the doors of the temple. Just shut the temple doors. It is better for you not to show up than to show up and defile the holy thing. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. If you have homes, stay home. Don't come to the Lord's Supper like that at all. Well, people would obviously say, well, we do have houses to stay in. Well, maybe there's a second option. Look at verse 22. Or do you despise the church of God? Do you think so lowly of the sacrifice of Christ? Do you think so minimally of the blood of Christ? And do you think so despairingly and despisingly of the person of Christ that you would come to His table and defile it? And since it is the Lord's table, and since He is spiritually present here as the host, can you imagine sitting down at a table with the Lord Jesus with that kind of stuff in your heart and in your life? The one who sees all and knows all. And can you imagine sitting across the table from Him at a potluck and enjoying your meal and refusing to share anything with your brother who is in need sitting right behind you or beside you or across the table from you? Can you imagine doing that? Well, if you say yes to that, it is only because you so despise the person of Christ that you would be willing to do that. That's what Paul asked him. Do you despise the church of God? Or is it because you like to shame those who have nothing? Look at the end of verse 22. Is it because you like to shame those who have nothing? If you have houses, stay home. Or is it because you just like to come and despise Christ? Well, no, no, we don't like to despise Christ. Well, then you like to shame those who have nothing. You like to hold up for ridicule those who don't have any food. So everybody watches those who didn't get to eat, kind of leave the church building, and sort of make their way out. Hungry. And we all know who the have-nots are, right? Because they were the ones with nothing on their plates and no plates. And you had the haves over here. Paul says, do you just enjoy despising your brother? Maybe it's because you just don't like your brother. Boy, that's just biting criticism, isn't it? That was their insult of communion. That's why Paul says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I'm not going to praise you. Listen. Anytime that Paul had an opportunity to point out something good in a church or in people... He would do it. At the beginning of this epistle, even with all the problems in Corinth, he says to them, you're sanctified and you, you lack nothing when it comes to giftedness. You, here are all the good things he could say about the church. He says them in chapter 1. They're not very many. But then he gets here and talking about communion, he says when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. And you read there's nothing that he can praise them for in their celebration of communion. He doesn't even say kudos for trying, buddies. That's an attaboy. You get an attaboy for trying. You gave it a shot. You, you tried it. You had the form down. You had the juice. You had the wine. Good for you. Nothing of the sort. I have nothing to praise you for, he says. That's how badly they had insulted the whole communion service. 
Well, now he's going to remind them of the institution of communion. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, he is using a rabbinic formula or sort of something that a teacher would, a phrase that a teacher would use to say, in essence, what I am giving to you now is not something that I made up. It is something that I'm passing on to you. This is something that I received myself from the Lord. Now, I want you to look at, in your outline, I gave you three things. Communion is of a divine origin is the first one. That's the first thing that Paul Paul says here, communion is of a divine origin. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. Now, it's a little uncertain whether Paul means that he got this by direct revelation from the Lord, because he certainly was not there at the Last Supper with Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples when Jesus did this. So I think it means that Paul received this from the Lord directly as a direct revelation. But it may also mean that Paul is saying, this was handed down from the apostles to me, but it goes back all the way to the Lord. It is of divine origin. And that's the first thing that the Corinthians needed to understand. What we do here on a communion service is not something that the apostles made up. It's not something that Jewish Christians made up. It's not something that Gentile Christians made up. It is not something that the Catholic Church in the Dark Ages made up. This is of divine origin. And it goes all the way back to the Lord Himself. His last meal with His disciples. A Passover meal. Quietly in a room by themselves, he is teaching them. He is enjoying his last meal with them. This is his last time together. And he does something unimaginable in the Jewish mind. And we're going to get to that in a second. But it is also something incredibly profound. He gives to them a, something that they can remember him by. And it is of divine origin. Friends, you and I are not free to tamper with this. Do you understand that? We're not free to say, well... The church traditionally has had communion and they've done it this way and they've used, um, they've used crackers or, or bread and juice and we're going to use peanut butter sandwiches and Coke. And we're going to sort of customize it to the new generation and make it a, 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 sort of adjust it to the postmodern mind and so we could reach the younger crowd. No, this is of divine origin. This is not something you tamper with. This is not something that you make up. This is not something that we redefine the meaning or the symbolism of or the significance of over time. It doesn't evolve with our culture, our needs or our wants, or our narcissistic bent. This is something that is of divine origin. Second, it is a, a, a communion is a divine command, or a divine memorial, sorry. It is a divine memorial. When you take a piece of bread and you hold it in your hands, what are you remembering? You're remembering something, right? Because twice in this passage, Paul quotes Jesus who said, do this in remembrance of me. We have holidays all through our year in this country, even as Christians. We have Christian holidays where we remember things. We just had Christmas. What do we remember at Christmas? The incarnation of the Son of God. On 4th of July, what do we remember? The signing of the Declaration of Independence. On Resurrection Sunday, what do we remember? We remember the resurrection of our Lord. On Veterans Day, we remember something. Memorial Day, we remember something. Thanksgiving, we remember things. We have holidays all through the year that point back to something that we meditate on and we remember. What Jesus did was institute a divine memorial. He said, when you do it, you do it in remembrance of me. You think back and you reflect upon what it was that he did. So when you hold the bread in your hands, You hold the bread and you're thinking to yourself, this represents or is a symbol of 
the body of my Lord that was broken. The second person of the Holy Trinity became flesh and dwelt in a body. And then he offered that body and his blood as a sacrifice on a cross so that he could deliver me from my sin. That's what you're remembering. And then you hold that cup of juice in your hand. And you're remembering something. You are remembering that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And you are remembering that that blood was shed to pay a price and atone for you. And you remember that the church of God was purchased with His own blood. That's what you remember. It is a divine memorial. Now, this was, this was an affront to Jewish sensibilities, and it was a affront to people in the early church. It was not something that they did naturally. And I'll tell you why. Just this last, um, was it yesterday? Saddam Hussein, early, early yesterday morning, Saddam Hussein was executed. Now, I'm not going to tell you whether or not I like that or not, whether I think that was a good idea. I'm not going to say anything about it, but I, I do kind of think it was a, a good idea. <laughs> now, can you imagine, I was reading the news reports last night because I got online right after I got home and I, I checked online just to see if they had done it because last I had heard while I was up in Canada, uh, it was just possible they're going to happen, likely going to happen, and they were trying to get a stay of execution and all of that stuff. So I got online last night, I looked at the news stories, and I was trying to find photos and videos and stuff like that, which most of you probably did too. I'm kind of sick that way, and I, I wanted to make sure that it had happened. And so I, one of the news stories said that he had asked for his final meal, and his final meal was boiled chicken and rice and a cup of hot water laced with honey. Laced is probably not a good, that was the word that the story used, but I wouldn't have used that word, hot water with honey in it. Okay? There's something that goes back to his childhood. Now, can you imagine if once a month, the Baathist party, remnants of the Baathist party got together and they memorialized Saddam Hussein by eating a meal of boiled chicken and rice and a cup of hot water with honey in it. What would you think of them? And if they said, this is my body, and they ate it, we're eating Saddam, this is a symbol of what Saddam meant to us, and this is we're drinking this juice because this is a symbol of what... You'd think they're crazy, wouldn't you? Well, in the early church, that's how Jews and that's how many unbelievers looked at the communion meal. What are these people doing? That's how the rumors got circulated that they were cannibals. What are these people doing? It was not something that sort of struck them as the most natural thing to do. It was very unnatural for them to do that. Particularly for the Jews, because for thousands of years, those two symbols meant something else. And that's the third point. Not only is communion of divine origin and a divine memorial, but it is the pledge of a divine covenant. It is the pledge of a divine covenant. And that is why Jesus said this is the new covenant. In my blood, do this as often as you drink it. Now, if you were one of the disciples and you were a Jew and you were sitting there enjoying that Passover meal, here's what you would have been doing. Jesus would have been the host of the meal and he was, and he was uh, administering the meal and they were talking and the host in those days, whoever hosted the Passover meal would sit and explain to his guests everything that was going on and what the symbolism of, of it was and why they did what they did and be recounting God's deliverance of them from the land of Egypt through the Red Sea and the death angel and the blood on the doorpost and all of that. And everything in the meal was symbolic and represented that as they reflected upon God's deliverance of them as a nation from Egypt and their sal His salvation of them from the death angel. And so Jesus would take the bread. And this bread had the remembrance to the Jews. They, when they looked at the bread, they thought to themselves, the Exodus. We left Egypt and God delivered us from the bondage of Egypt. And we went out with the bread, the unleavened bread. We went out with that. And that reminds us of the fact that God delivered us from bondage. And then they would, Jesus would take the juice and they would look at the juice. And that was a reminder to them of the blood that was on the doorpost. 
that the death angel passed over when he went through and killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt as that tenth and final plague. And so they would be reflecting upon the deliverance from bondage and the, the, the blood that was shed to cover their doorpost and to keep them safe from the death angel. And Jesus, as He's administering these elements of the meal, takes the bread and He said, this is My body. And they'd be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, this is symbolic of our deliverance as a nation from Egypt. And Jesus breaks it and He says, no, no, here's the new significance. This is My body, which is going to be broken for you. And as it turns out, it's because His body was broken that we are delivered from sin. Is that not right? And then he takes the juice. And if that's not bad enough, he takes the juice. And he holds it up and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the Jews would be thinking to themselves, no, 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 no. That symbolizes the blood of the Passover lamb that was slain and the blood was put over the doorpost. And Jesus is taking these two elements of the meal and he is giving them all new significance and he is reinterpreting them in light of his own self, his own work, and his own doings. And he is saying, these things from this point forward will remind you not of a national deliverance and not of blood on doorposts, but of a spiritual deliverance that I have wrought through giving my body for you and of a spiritual deliverance and a redemption that I have paid for in the shedding of my blood. Do you understand that? And it was a divine covenant. And when they heard Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood, those Jews, and you have to put yourself in a Jewish Passover mindset, those Jewish disciples would have thought, Exodus 24. You know what happened in Exodus 24? All of the leaders of the people gathered together with Moses. And God said, I want you to reaffirm the covenant. And so Moses read in their hearing all of the elements of the law, all of the ordinances and the restrictions and the requirements for obedience. And the people said, everything that you have done, or everything that you have said, we will do. We will obey your words. And Moses said, okay. And they took all of these young lambs and they slaughtered them and they took half of the blood and they put it in basins and they sprinkled the people with it. And, and Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant. In other words, the covenant that was made between God when He said, this is what you must do. And the people said, we will do it. God said, okay, we have established a covenant. Now we're going to kill some animals and we're going to, we're going to sign that covenant in blood. And that's what the Jews would think of when Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's taking Exodus 24 and he's saying the old covenant is not going to be expanded. It's not going to be amplified. We're not just altering it a little bit. It's stopping. It's ceasing. It's a new covenant. And this one is authored and sanctified and sealed and set apart by my blood. Not bulls, not goats, not lambs, not sheep, not anything else. I'm shedding my blood to deliver you and establish a new covenant with you. A covenant of grace, not of works. You get that? And that's all that the Jews would have understood. It is of divine origin, it is a divine memorial, and it established or was a pledge of a divine covenant. So Paul reproved them or rebuked them for their insult of communion. Second, he reminded them of the institution of communion when the Lord instituted that feast. And here's the most convicting and, and I think the most important part of all of this. Paul reminded them of the intention of communion, and there are three of them that I want you to take note of. First of all, the first one is in verse 26. Communion is a proclamation of Christ's death. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It is a proclamation of the death of Christ. Every time you take that piece of bread and that cup of juice, you are proclaiming in a visible, symbolic way that somebody has died for you 
and that you must take that person unto yourself to receive the benefits of what he did. And so you proclaim the death of Christ. Not only do you proclaim the death of Christ, but you proclaim that that death of Christ in some way covers you or applies to you or has been appropriated by you. But it proclaims His death. Second, the death of Christ or the communion is not only a proclamation of Christ's death, but it is a prophecy of Christ's coming. We do this until He comes. Because Jesus said, I'm not going to eat or drink until the kingdom is established. Until I'm with you again, I'm not going to eat or drink of the cup. And so we do this, not only remembering or reflecting upon His death, but actually anticipating and looking forward to His second coming when we get to enjoy that with Him. And every communion service, at some point it should flash through our minds, maybe this will be the last one. Right? Wouldn't that be great? If today's, It would be great if we never even got to enjoy this one because the Lord came back. But wouldn't it be great if this were the last communion service that we enjoyed together? I think that would be phenomenal. We do it anticipating His return, the setting up of the kingdom, and sitting down with Him and enjoying this in glory with Him. Not only a proclamation of His death, a prophecy of His coming. And third, communion is an opportunity for self-examination. And every Sunday when we go, when we have our communion service, I always remind you, you can partake of the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner because you'll notice that Paul tells the Corinthians that they need to examine themselves. Whoever eats of the bread, verse 27, or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We are to examine ourselves because it is possible for us to eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, when we do this on Sunday mornings, I sort of in very general terms remind you or tell you there are two ways that we can do this. We can partake of the cup of the Lord and the table of the Lord as an unbeliever, which is an unworthy manner, or as a believer with unrepentant, unrepentant of sin in our lives. Well, those are two very general statements, but let me give you some very practical, very applicable, very down-to-earth ways in which that sort of fleshes itself out. You can partake of the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner if to you it's just a ritual. Right? You show up on a Sunday morning and you see it. Okay, well, communion Sunday again. And you sit down and we know they get a little snack either before the sermon or after the sermon. We'll find out. We open up the bulletin. Communion is after the sermon. Oh, bummer. I was hoping for sort of the halftime show when we got a snack. But we'll just sort of go through the ritual and he has to read the passage and he has to remind us of this. And we have our examination. We pass them out. We eat them. We're done. And it's just the ritual that we go through. That's a very unworthy manner if that's how you approach communion. In a ritualistic fashion. Remember Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And it's easy to go through the motions without the emotion. You understand that? It's easier to go through the motions of communion without the emotion that's attached to communion. So if you just approach it like it's just some ritualistic thing that you have to go through the motions to do, because it's the Christian thing that we do in this church once a month, that's unworthy. It's unworthy of the table. Now, there was the way the Corinthians were doing it unworthy, obviously, the drunkenness and the division. But these are some other ways. We don't get drunk here, and there's no division here, at least that I'm aware of. There's no drunkenness and there's no division here, so there are other ways that we can partake of the Lord's cup and the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And that's one of them, ritualism or ritualistically. Also, if our minds are not focused on communion when we partake of communion, that's temptation, isn't it, friends? When our minds are somewhere else, every element of Christian worship and Christian service, listen to this, 
requires your focus and your discipline and your diligence of mind and heart and spirit. From the minute you show up here, there is nothing that we don't do that does not require your mind to be right here. I tell my kids all the time, be where you're at. Be where you're at. Because they're wandering around banging into walls and not thinking about what's going on. Their minds are somewhere else. Be where you're at. Where you're at physically, there you should be mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. And sometimes you come to church, you come in here, and you grab your bullets, and you sit down, and you begin singing in your mind somewhere else, and you tune in for the announcements, because there might be something there that's of interest to you. And then when I read the Scripture, you're thinking about something else. The football game, the roast in the oven, something that happened, the car accident that you had this last week, what's going on at home, somebody that we need to pray for. And then we go through the singing, and you're saying the words, and you're reading them off a wall, and you're going down through the whole thing, but your mind is not here, your heart is not here. And then you stand up, and in the preaching of the Word, you're somewhere else. Your Bible's open on your lap, but your mind is closed to anything that's going on around you. And you're thinking about a thousand other things. And then we sing the final hymn and you've never really clued into what's going on. And you get up and you leave here and you walk out and you sit down in your car and you say to yourself, I didn't get anything out of that. Shazam! You didn't get anything out of that. What did you expect? Do you do that when you go to the theater, sit down and watch a movie and tune out for two and a half hours and then get up and say, well, I didn't think that was a good movie. I didn't catch anything that went on. I didn't get anything out of that movie. Why do you do that at a Lord's table or at a worship service? Every single element of worshiping God and serving God in everything we do here on a Sunday morning requires your focus, your diligence, your discipline, and your mental presence here. You can't tune out and get anything. You have to be here, and it's the same thing with communion. You don't tune out for communion. You zero in and you discipline your mind to focus on what you're here for. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. And I would say with Paul, don't you have houses to do that in? Right? You can stay home and tune out. So stay home and tune out. But if you come here, be where you're at. It has to be that way for worship. It has to be that way in the communion service. You can take of it in an unworthy manner. If it's just a ritual, if your mind's not focused, or if you just view it as the necessary evil, this is something that Christians do, and I'm a Christian, so we've got to do it, and want to get past this and get passed on to something else that's good, more singing or more preaching or more reading or something else that I'm interested in, that's all unworthy. That's all an unworthy manner. You can partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner if you're an unbeliever because you come here and you're saying, this death covers me, when in fact it hasn't because you've never appropriated it by faith. And so you blaspheme the presence of Christ. You trample underfoot His blood because you're not a believer. You've never trusted Christ. You've never repented of your sin. You've never been born again. You partake of the Lord's Supper and you are in essence saying, I'm trusting in this blood, which is a lie to everybody around you and you know it. And it's just a show and it's just a game. It's just something that you're doing. And you're blaspheming Christ. Do you so despise the church of God and do you despise Christ? Do you not have homes that you can't stay home and blaspheme? Why would you come to church and blaspheme? Or you can partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner if you've got sin in your heart or there's something between you and a brother. And that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Go back to it. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself as he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Some of you are under the judgment of God, Paul says, because of what you're doing at the communion service. It's a very somber, very serious thing. And some of you are suffering sickness and illness. And some of you I have killed. Some of you the Lord has killed because you're partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's a pretty serious thing, isn't it? you understand how serious that is? When Paul says you do not judge the body rightly, some people wonder, what, what does he mean by judge the body rightly? Does he mean, is he talking about the body of Christ? Is he talking about the body that is symbolized by the bread? So is he talking about bread or... By body, does he mean my body, as in there's sin in my body? I think the context explains it. 
you are not judging the body, that is, the whole body of Christ. There are divisions among you, Paul says. And you're not even able to discern that the divisions that are among you are contributing to you partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Here is my conviction. If there is division in a church, then communion should be canceled. Canceled. And you just don't partake of it. Why? You bar the doors of the temple and you say, until this is dealt with, until the division is gone, we are not going to blaspheme the table of the Lord with some hypocritical observance that totally spits on and tramples on the spiritual presence of Christ. So until the division is dealt with, until the schisms are dealt with, until the relationships are mended, no communion. So if you ever see one of us stand up and say, look, we're canceling communion until some things get dealt with, then you know that we've got problems in the church and they need to be dealt with. Why? Because it's better to not observe this than to observe it and profane it. You don't judge the body rightly. So, Paul says, if you examined yourself and you repented of your sin and you confessed your sin and you dealt with that before the Lord and then you observed communion as it was intended to be observed as an expression of unity and oneness and love, then the Lord would not judge you. But because you won't judge yourselves, God is disciplining you, He is chastening you, and He is judging you. And the implication is, from the text, He's going to continue to do that until things change. So that's the the, the intention of communion. It is intended to proclaim Christ's death, to prophesy of His coming, and it is an opportunity for self-examination. Now, I've I've put down five questions that I think kind of commonly come up. Maybe your questions are on here, maybe they're not. They're not in your notes. You can just kind of take note of them mentally. The first question is, why do we use bread and wine, not something else? Why not Snickers and Coke? Why not Snickers and Coke? You know why? Because Jesus didn't sanctify Snickers and Coke. If Jesus had set apart Snickers and Coke and said, these things are going to symbolize me, then we would be using Snickers and Coke from now until eternity. Until we get there. But He didn't set apart Snickers and Coke. So we use, we use bread and, and juice. It actually took me off guard one Sunday because we had communion. And, and uh, I'm not sure who was preparing communion. I think it was John that was preparing communion that Sunday. And I got up, this was in the old church building. I got up to do communion and I took the lid off of the plate. And on one plate was bread and another plate was Ritz crackers all crumpled up. And it kind of startled me. But what had happened was we had run out of the communion bread and we had the whole service geared for communion and so we just put in Ritz crackers. And there's nothing sinful about Ritz crackers. Don't get me wrong. I think it serves well with bread or, or the unleavened bread that we eat. It's basically the same thing. But the idea is that we have two things that are given to us by the Lord. Those are the things that we use. That's why we don't use anything. We're not free to alter this. This is not something that we devise for our own benefit. They say, well, we're going to give this new symbolism. It's of divine origin, you remember. So we use bread and crackers, or bread and juice, because the Lord instituted very sanctified bread and juice. Second question, is there anything magical that happens in partaking of communion? I think there is a spiritual grace that is conveyed to us. It's not a saving grace. It is, in a sense, a sanctifying grace. In the partaking of communion, just as there is a grace, not saving, but it's somewhat sanctifying, in baptism, and in everything else that we do, there is grace present. And when we observe the Lord's table with Him spiritually present as the host, and we are doing so with a right heart and a right mind, there is a benefit that comes to the people of God for doing that. As our minds and hearts are focused in obedience upon Him and remembering Him, there is a grace in that. But there's nothing supernatural. There's nothing magical. This does not transform into the body and the blood of Christ. The body and the blood of Christ are not contained in these elements in some mystical fashion. They are just bread and juice that we use to symbolize something else It reminds us of Him. Nothing magical that happens. Nothing saving that happens. Third question, who can serve communion? Is it only the elders who can serve communion? Let me ask you this question. Did you read that anywhere in the passage? 
This is the longest treatment of communion anywhere in the New Testament. Most detailed. Did you read anywhere in here that only elders can serve communion? Did you read anywhere in here that only elders can administer communion and do what I do, stand up here and read the passage and explain it and then sort of oversee that? Do you notice that when we stand up here on a Sunday morning to observe communion, that I'm the only elder usually that's up here? David and Jess usually don't. It's not because they're lazy. It's not because they don't want to serve you. It's that we open that up to give opportunity to the other men in the congregation who are coming here and, and, and have, are contributing to help serve the elements of communion. We have groups of men that do that. Doesn't, not just to, uh, to be honest with you, I look forward to the day when Jess or Dave come up here and do everything that I do. And I preach and sit down and then I observe communion with you and Jess or Dave oversee it or administrate it. Or some other spiritual man is able to do that and do so in a God-honoring way. I wouldn't have a problem with that. I don't think elders have to be the ones to serve communion. What about women? Can women serve communion? Have you ever in 10 years seen a woman up here serving communion? No, you haven't. You know why that is? Is it because we hate women? No, not because we hate women. Nor is it because anywhere in Scripture it says that women can't serve communion. It doesn't say that. And if all you had available to you was women to serve the elements of communion, we would have women up here. But in this church, we have a a biblical perspective of male headship, that the male is to be the head in the home and in the church, and that although women are ontologically equal with men, there are different roles, and men are given the leadership function within the worship service, in the preaching and the teaching of the Word, in the reading of Scripture, and in doing everything else. And so we expect the men in this church to stand up here and to lovingly, sacrificially serve the women in this church. Now, that is when a lady got up and she walked out. She said, I'm going somewhere where they respect women. And she got them walked out of the service before I even got anywhere past into the next question. Now, if that to you is, is sexist, that as a leadership, we would expect men to take a leadership role and to humbly, sacrificially, and, and lead women and lead their families and lead the church in serving other people. If that's sexist, then I'm a sexist. And guilty as charged, but I don't think it is. I think we have high expectations for men in this church. And we expect them to participate in worship service, and we love to see them participate in worship service. And so we let the men, not because I hate women and not because it's unbiblical for women to do that, but there are roles that Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that women are to function in the, in the church service, and communion or the serving and leading in the worship is not listed as one of them. In fact, it's prohibited. So we allow men to do that, to sacrificially lead the other people in the church. Fourth question. Do you have to be a member of the church to participate in communion? Yes and no. Do you have to be a member of Kootenai Community Church? No. You do have to be a member of the church. In other words, you have to belong to Christ. You have to belong to His flock. You have to be a believer. And if this is your first Sunday here, if you belong to Christ and you're partaking in a worthy manner, we invite you to partake of communion with us. You don't have to be a member here. You just have to belong to Christ. That's all we're concerned about. Fifth question, what about children? Can children participate? Now, this is kind of a thorny one, and I have nothing to give you from the Lord on this other than sort of some guidelines that I think apply to this question of communion and children's participation in communion. Ultimately, it's up to every parent to decide when your child is going to participate and how your child is going to participate and when your child is ready to participate. But let me give you what Deidre and I have decided and why we've decided to do what we do. Not, none of our children except one participate with us in communion. Now, there was one time when I was standing up here and I saw my second oldest get something off of a tray. 
on a day like today when my wife is down in the nursery and he was sitting with somebody else, he actually partook of communion. And uh, we put the kibosh on that right away. What we have decided to do is that when our children trust Christ for salvation and they evidence the graces of salvation and sanctification and they're growing in grace and it's evidence that they've been born again by the Spirit of God and that they're trusting Christ as Savior and that fruit is in their life, after they are baptized, we will allow them to partake of communion. And here's why. There are two ordinances that Christ has given to us. And as a family, we've said both of these are for believers. And once they are old enough to understand the symbolism and the significance and the importance and the, the import of baptism, and they are baptized in obedience to Christ, then we will allow them to partake of communion as a believer, as a baptized believer, after that. Why? Because I do not want... And you say, what's biblical about that? Can't you just give your child at two, three years old the communion bread and the juice and just let it be at that? Well, I guess you could. But... In our thinking, we think that there is something in withholding communion from them until they're able to understand it that communicates to them, this is a serious thing. Right? You don't want, I don't want you to view this as the halftime show. I don't want you to view this as a snack right before we pick everything up. I want you to understand the symbolism, the significance, the import of this. If it is possible for you and I to participate in communion in an unworthy manner, it is possible for your children to participate in communion in an unworthy manner. Does that make sense? So if it's important for us as adults to get this down, it's important for children to get this down. So once my daughter was baptized as a believer in obedience to Christ, then we explained communion to her because she was able to understand what these things symbolize and what the import of them is. Then we allowed them to partake of communion. Just because you're a Christian does not qualify you to partake of communion. Do you understand that? There's examination issues. There's understanding All of this mental stuff and spiritual stuff has to be in line. And I think that a child has to be able to put all of those pieces together before they participate in communion. Those are the five questions I have. Now, you may have other questions apart from that, other than those five. Um, I would just say this to you as parents. I I would encourage you to sit down with your spouse and examine this and talk this over so that you are able to reevaluate this once again and say, Are we doing the right thing in what we're doing with our children and what are our motives for doing it? I don't want to have anything to do with giving my child communion and having them eat and drink judgment to themselves because they are not able to discern rightly and examine themselves and to partake in a worthy manner. I want to withhold that from them and allow them to grow in grace to the point where they can approach this in a manner that it is worthy to be approached in. And then and only then should they be allowed to partake of communion. That's where I'm at. As a parent, you've got to make your own decision on that. hope that answers some of your questions. We went a little bit longer than normal with that. We're going to take a few minutes now to examine our own hearts before the Lord because all of this has just served to introduce communion. This is a weighty thing. It is a memorial. It is a divine command. It is a blessing that we are to partake of, and we need to do so in a worthy manner. So the first step in doing that is to examine our own hearts. We'll take a few minutes to pray, and then when we're done, I'll call the elders forward, or the, the ushers forward help serve communion this morning to uh, help us partake. So let's pray together first. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.